Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, this is episode seven of the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. And today I'll be sharing with you my conversation with Dr. Joel Minden about his three-step approach to managing anxiety, which he outlines in his book, Show Your Anxiety Who's Boss. Dr. Minden is a licensed clinical psychologist in California specializing in CBT for anxiety and related disorders, including OCD, depression, and relationship problems. He is the director of the Chico Center for Cognitive Behavior Therapy, a lecturer in the Department of Psychology at California State University, Chico, and author of the CBT and Me blog on Psychology Today. As you'll soon hear, Dr. Minden's evidence-based approach to treating anxiety is, in many respects, very similar to my own, though he does do much more cognitive work than I do. In fact, for those of you who've been listening to this podcast, you'll know that I don't typically recommend challenging anxiety-provoking thoughts and instead encourage allowing these kinds of thoughts to stick around for however long they choose to linger while acknowledging that these thoughts could be true and that our feared outcomes could happen without avoiding in any way. That said, I thought it might be helpful to have a guest on the show who could talk not only about acceptance and exposure, but also about the errors and thinking that we tend to make when feeling anxious and about cognitive strategies for shifting these thoughts so that you can choose the approach that works best for you. And with this in mind, I hope you'll find this conversation with Dr. Minden to be as valuable and interesting as I did. He's a highly skilled and compassionate clinician with lots of science-backed tools and words of wisdom to share, and I really enjoyed chatting with him. Hi, I'm here today with Dr. Joel Minden. Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alyssa. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so nice to have you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. And to get us started, I'm hoping you can talk a bit about what inspired you to write your book and who you wrote it for. I wrote this book because I find that so many people struggle with anxiety. Uh, It's an emotion that's, I think, familiar to all of us, and and some people really have a tough time. And I just find uh, again and again that people turn to the same tactics over and over again to try to manage anxiety that, in my opinion, um, have a minimal impact. um, And at worst, they can be kind of destructive. 
Um, and so what I hear a lot of the time, for example, is, uh, you know, when people contact me for therapy, they say, I have a tough time with anxiety. And I ask, what do you do to, to try to manage it? And they say, I do breathing exercises, or I try to, you know, stay away from situations that make me anxious. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, my perspective is, is the stuff is, you know, I, I see why people turn to those tactics, but I think it's much more useful to acknowledge that, anxiety is going to be there, that there are going to be certain situations that really test us, that challenge us. And from time to time, we're going to have a difficult time with that emotion. And if we want to be able to deal with anxiety effectively throughout our lives, instead of working so hard to try to control or reduce it, it's uh, extremely important to learn how to understand it um, and relate differently to it. So in this book, I really wanted to emphasize that anxiety management is, is not so much about or effective anxiety management is not so much about uh, trying to eliminate it. It's about understanding and responding more effectively to it. So uh, in my opinion, I think, you know, the tactics um, or the strategies in this book can be useful for people who struggle with all kinds of anxiety-related issues, whether it's uh, social anxiety or a phobia, or they're struggling with intrusive thoughts or panic. Um, certain situations test them. Uh, I think there are a lot of common threads. And so I think it's useful for people to understand how all anxiety-related concerns have certain elements in common, and that the strategies that we use to, to manage anxiety in one situation are, are probably very similar to the, the strategies that we might want to use in others. So um, yeah, sort of a kind of a trans-diagnostic approach, I guess, to uh, understanding and, and dealing with anxiety. And I just thought that um, you know it's really important to have a resource like that out there in the world. And so that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's a fantastic resource for people. So for those of you listening, I highly recommend uh, recommend your book, Show Your Anxiety you. Who's Boss. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think that that piece that you talked about, about how people try to control anxiety to get rid of it, I think that's something that's really important because unfortunately those efforts oftentimes backfire and don't work so well. Mm -hmm. um, and as we talked about, um, you know, over, over email, our approaches to anxiety are really similar in many ways. And, and that's one of them, right? This, this kind of view, as you said, that anxiety at its worst is a problem of over control. And I really, I couldn't agree more with that statement. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more though about that. Mm-hmm. Anxiety, uh, it's such an interesting emotion. And I find that a lot of people who struggle with anxiety, or they meet the criteria for an anxiety disorder, they tend to be, um, I'm, I experience this regularly, often so high functioning, um, mm -hmm. that they experience anxiety, and they kind of use it to sort of fuel action, they, they plan, they prepare that they, they're good problem solvers. And this is really helpful when there's a practical problem, when there's something that really needs some extra attention, mm -hmm. when it's important to prepare to, to be ready for, for the challenge. Um, and so I think, you know, all of that stuff is, is good. It's helpful to kind of use anxiety as a cue to action. And when we do that, right, we kind of experience the sense of personal control that, hey, I'm, I'm making uh, a difference here, right, that my efforts are paying off, that I, I have an impact. 
And so that that's so important, I think, in mental health to, to really boost that sense of personal control. But the over-control element, I think when people get used to being excellent problem solvers to, you know, fixing issues that come up or, or really planning for upcoming challenges, they try to apply the same tactics, the same principles to things that they cannot predict or control. And that's where it becomes a problem of over-control. So for example, if, you know, if someone starts to worry about all of the bad things that might happen in a certain situation, um, you know, and then they try to prepare, right, for everything, then they're sort of distancing themselves from, you know, more productive activities, they're distancing themselves from, uh, um, you know, just sort of moving on with their lives, and, and they're letting anxiety kind of take over and, and sort of dictate what they do. So when people try to control the inner experience, uh, I think that's when, you know, the, the control strategies tend to backfire. So trying to control how you think, trying to control the emotional response, trying to control the physical reactions of anxiety. These are the things that, that I think are not very useful. So in my opinion, um, yeah, you, you do want to uh, try to control the things that you can control. Mm -hmm. And then you also, I think it's also really important to learn how to let go and acknowledge that, uh, you know, there will be uh, some elements of uncertainty in the future. And that's something that we just have to learn to live with. And also it's important to learn how to uh, live with a certain amount of anxiety that we're not going to be able to control it entirely. And so I think if we can find a really nice balance between control and, or maybe rather control, rather than saying control, uh, change um, and acceptance. And so that's kind of how I look at anxiety management long-term, right? We've got those two basic options, change and acceptance. And it's the individual's job to figure out uh, which of the two do I employ or which ones do I rely on? And, and sometimes it's a mixture. And so bottom line, I think the more that we can learn to be flexible in the way we experience anxiety and respond to it, the better for, for long-term anxiety management. Mm, yeah. And I like, I think that's an important point there, right? That sometimes we do need to use a bit of change skills and a bit of acceptance, right? And sometimes we might try one or the other and then discover it's not working. Right. And it's about noticing when it's not working for us and maybe then trying something else there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, you know, getting locked into this control perspective that, you know, that's where people tend to struggle. And especially, right, if they're used to controlling things and being good at it, um, they become sort of committed to control tactics. So learning to let go of that and say, you know, sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not, that can be a game changer, I think. Yeah, definitely. And, and so as you talk about in your book, these efforts to control anxiety, they come with a cost. And are oftentimes when there are problems that are outside of our control, those control strategies are unlikely to give us any long-term relief. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because of this, rather than try to eliminate anxiety, you use a three-pronged approach to help people develop a new relationship with it. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about each of these three components of your approach to managing anxiety. Sure. The, the first one is, I always start at this point, I think it's important for people who have a tough time with anxiety to become better observers of how they think. 
And we all get stuck on these, these ideas, these, these biased um, beliefs about uh, the future, especially with anxiety, because it is such a future-oriented issue, that you know we start to believe certain things that that may not be true. Now, the problem, of course, is you know when we're dealing with the future, we we don't know if our thoughts are, are accurate, if they're realistic. Mm-hmm. So we do the best we can. But I find that uh, often when when people do have uh, do struggle with anxiety, they tend to get stuck on three types of beliefs. One is uh, the tendency to believe that bad things are going to happen, even if they don't have any evidence, if there's nothing, no data to indicate that, yes, here's here's this setback that you're likely to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, another, you know, sort of problematic belief is the idea that not only will something bad happen, but it's going to be horrible, it's going to be catastrophic. And then finally, uh, the belief that when this bad or catastrophic thing happens, I'm not going to be able to handle it. I won't be able to cope. So it's possible that those beliefs are true, but it's also possible that they're way off base, that they're mm-hmm. kind of removed from, from um, you know, what, what we might consider to be realistic. And so uh, I call the, the biased patterns of thinking, I call them anxious fictions. And in my book, I use a lot of little rhymes to kind of help people remember, um, you know, the different strategies. And so I guess tactic number one or strategy number one is, um, you know, first you, you kind of notice those anxious fictions. And, and so I encourage people to, you um, make useful predictions, not anxious fictions. Mm -hmm. So once you notice, you know, a tendency to think in a certain way, then that sort of opens up an opportunity to say, well, I'm not sure if I want to believe that, or if I want to go with that idea, maybe I want to respond to it with a different way of looking at the situation. So for example, uh, let's say somebody is concerned about an up- upcoming social challenge. They're going to meet somebody new, or they're going to go to a, uh, an event where there are going to be a lot of people, or they have to do some public speaking, and they might have this prediction, this belief that I'm going to go and people will laugh at me and I'm going to be ridiculed. And uh, you know that would, of course, be very unpleasant if it happened. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, sometimes people think this way, and they've had lots of social experiences where nothing like that has ever happened. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, instead of thinking, you know, this will happen, and, and maybe it's best that I don't go, maybe a more realistic perspective, uh, realistic and useful, might be something like you know, it's probably not going to happen. I'm still concerned that it might. I want to prepare a little bit just in case it does. And here's what I'm going to do. So to me, that seems, you know, both realistic and useful. I have another way of understanding what's going to happen. And then I also have a little bit of a plan in place so that I can be effective or so that I can deal with any setbacks that come my way. The problem, of course, is, you know, the over-control issue where sometimes Mm -hmm. people go really far with this. But for certain problems, for certain people, I think this is really helpful to be able to notice the anxious fictions and then, uh, again, respond with useful predictions. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's the first the first kind of step of your approach to, to notice those anxious fictions, mm-hmm. replace them with more useful predictions. 
Yes. And, and I would say instead of replace, because the anxious fictions are going to be there, mm-hmm. you know, people who kind of rehearse certain ways of thinking that sometimes they've done this for years. Mm-hmm. And, and something I hear a, a lot from folks is, um, you know, I think about the worst that will happen and that really prepares me. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you believe that, then you're probably going to keep going back to, you know, the, the catastrophic thinking when things are difficult or uncertain. So I tell, um, you know, I, I really emphasize this, the thoughts are probably going to persist, right? You might mm-hmm. challenge the belief, you might respond to it with something that you think is more believable or, or more helpful. But that doesn't mean the original thought is going to go away, it's not going to be replaced, it's still there. But it just gives you an opportunity to sort of think about, um, you know, do I want to go with this original idea? Or would it be helpful for me to consider a, a different perspective? Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important point there because, and you even, you know this in your book that the more we try, if we try to like combat these thoughts and really get rid of these anxious fictions, they probably are just going to keep coming back, right? They are, mm-hmm. um, they can be pretty, pretty tough and persistent, right? And, and so I think this approach of letting those kind of maybe be there and having this more realistic view as well can be useful. Um, mm-hmm. I want to note here, and you know this, we talked a bit about this, that I, I tend to shy away from in doing any formal cognitive restructuring when treating anxiety. And, and I do so for two reasons. And one of those, I'll, I'll get to the other one in a little bit, but one of them is that I found that sometimes those attempts to reassure ourselves or to, to, um, to think about things in a more realistic way can actually function as a form of reassurance or avoidance, right? Yes. So, you know, okay. if I'm worried that I'm going to make a fool of myself in a social situation and I reassure myself that it's unlikely to happen or that even that, like, even if it does happen, that I'll be able to cope with that. I found that sometimes, again, that those kind of that more realistic way of thinking about things again, might temporarily reduce anxiety, but then anxiety comes back with, well, what if it's really terrible, right? What if you can't cope with it? Or and, and so, and even personally in my own life, I think I've noticed that, that if I try to restructure a thought, it oftentimes actually backfires and I find myself feeling anxious a few minutes later. But if I just acknowledge, you know what? They might be judging me. They might think I'm doing a terrible job or something. Usually, I mean, I feel the anxiety, but I'm able to navigate that a little more smoothly from there. So I'm curious your thoughts about that. And if when when specifically you would recommend using cognitive restructuring? That's that's a great question. And personally, I I don't know if I would really, um, I have trouble with that idea that kind of the term or, or the the principle of cognitive restructuring, because I think it sort of suggests that it is sort of thinking and uh, or, or changing your thinking. And, and a lot of people say, you know, but the original thought persists. So personally, I don't really use, um, I try not to use that language restructuring. Um, I, I sort of think of it more as hypothesis testing, right? Like mm-hmm. the scientists would, would say, one hypothesis is awful things will happen. And I can't handle it. Another mm-hmm. hypothesis is it probably won't, 
but it might. And I want to prepare a little bit in case it does or something like that. And then you kind of decide which one am I going to go with? Now, I, I totally agree with you, though, that the problem is sometimes the new idea, right, that can be sort of a, a strategy for reassuring the oneself. And so, um, especially if it starts moving towards something, oh, everything's going to be fine. Nothing bad will happen. And personally, um, I, uh, when when I talk to therapy clients and they say, you know, I just tell myself everything's going to be fine. Sometimes I'll I'll joke with them a little bit. It depends on on the person, right? Mm -hmm. If they're kind of on board with this, but I might say, but it might, right? <laughs> this awful thing might happen. And no, no, I think it's going to be okay. How do you know, right? You couldn't possibly predict. So I do try to help people think that this is probably what's going to happen, um, but it may not, right? I mean, I, I may find myself dealing with something really, really unexpected, really difficult. Um, and, and I guess the way I look at it is this kind of cognitive work is more useful for people who maybe they're sort of committed to a pattern of avoidance. So maybe they say, you know, I'm not able to go to class or I can't you know, talk to, to certain people about important things, or I can't drive in a car. Um, I think, you know, here's where sometimes it can be really useful for people to kind of explore the possibility of understanding the challenge in a new way so that they can start to move toward it. And if that gets somebody moving, if that gets them going toward um, something that's anxiety provoking, I think that's really helpful. Is there, you know, a little bit of reassurance maybe, but that's why, you know, I try to encourage people not to get too committed to a everything will, will be fine um, sort of view and, and to be really balanced in their perspective and to sort of look at it as I'm willing to accept the risk. I'm willing to move toward this challenge, even though it may not go well. Um, let's see what happens. So that that's kind of, I think the cognitive work is is probably helpful for people who could benefit from a little bit of a, a push, a cognitive push to move towards something that's really important that they normally tend to avoid. That makes sense. Okay. So, so getting people to dip their toe in the water to, to get started mm -hmm. and still making sure that you're, you're introducing the, that uncertainty there because it, it, it is there no matter what, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, okay. That's and I think helpful. we're, I, I think we, we kind of see things similarly that, you know, if you really want to learn to deal with anxiety, you got to be able to live with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So I always try to introduce that element, right? That even if you think, you know, even if you're 99% sure that things will be fine, you know, there's uncertainty. Mm -hmm. and, and can you live with that, right? Or, you know, because if you can't, right, then you're going to continue to avoid. But if you're okay with a, a reasonable amount of uncertainty, why not take the chance? Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think that actually, that's helpful for me when you frame it that way. Um, because I think my other concern with doing some sort of cognitive work before doing the second step of your approach, which is where you actually approach rather than avoid. My other concern is there is some data to suggest that learning is strongest when there's a mismatch between what we expect to happen and what actually happens, right? So if I think that everyone's gonna laugh at me and then I find out they don't laugh at me when I get up on stage or something like that, that might be a more powerful learning experience that I, I can, you know, retain for longer. And that comes to my mind more often for me to recall down the road than if I convince myself ahead of time that they're not going to laugh at me and then they don't laugh at me. 
then it's not as surprising that information. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you're saying, it sounds like is again, because of that uncertainty element that you're keeping alive, right? It sounds like maybe that might help to in- ensure that this is still somewhat, that there is still somewhat of a mismatch there between what you expect and what actually happens, because there might still be a little bit of expecting that, well, it could happen. And then you mm-hmm. find out it doesn't happen. Absolutely. And um, I agree completely, right, that, you know, the learning that's important is what happens after the experience, after, you know, the exposure. And um, yeah, this is so, you know, the subtleties, right? It's so important because so often I I talk to people who say, I thought the bad thing would happen and then it didn't, right? Mm -hmm. And now I feel good and I'm safe and I can keep, you know, doing this thing. And, you know, again, I feel like I'm <laughs> being difficult with folks when I say, well, yeah, but how do you know it's not going to happen next time mm-hmm. or the hundredth time you might get surprised and then you develop this false sense of security and, you know, you think everything's going to be, you know, good from now on and then it's not. So uh, I guess the way I see it is, you know, the mismatch, um, you know, or, or sort of the expectancy violation that's really important. I think often it has... It, you know, the, the more important new learning is um, related to somebody's understanding of anxiety, their ability to cope with anxiety, their ability to cope with uncertainty rather than, oh, the bad thing didn't happen. Mm. So that's that's what I really try to emphasize in terms of the, the new learning that, hey, you didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and uh, you dealt with it, right? You were able to handle that. So I think that's a, a huge win, a big deal. And in my experience, that's where people say, yeah, right. I'm really seeing that, Hey, I can, I can do difficult things, even if I don't know how it's going to go. Yeah, for sure. I can tolerate that uncertainty and that distress that accompanies that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, and so then the second step of your approach is exposure, approaching things that you've been avoiding, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about, about that. Um, you know, why, why that is so, so critical in your opinion. I think, you know, even though I I sort of start with this emphasis on cognition, I think the most important thing that, that we can all do if if, anxiety is a tough emotion to deal with is figure out how to live, right? You know, how, how do you do the things that are important, that are meaningful, that give you a sense of uh, purpose, uh, fulfillment? How do you do these things, even if you happen to feel anxious, at least in the early going or, or even consistently? I think that's what it's all about because, uh, you know, with anxiety disorders, or we look in the DSM and, you know, kind of we see across the board, there's this. I believe that this mention of kind of excessive and unreasonable um, uh, attempts to try to control the anxiety. So this is all sort of consistent with the idea of avoidance. And, And what I think is important is, you know, getting to a point where you can say, hey, anxiety, you know, do your worst, right? Whatever comes my way, I can deal with that. The important thing is that I'm prioritizing my life. Mm-hmm. I'm doing what, what I care about, what, what matters to me. I'm, you know, doing the things that are maybe exciting, maybe anxiety provoking, and I do them because I want to. And if anxiety happens to be there too, so be it, right? I deal with it. So I think that is is so important to uh, long-term anxiety management. For one reason, uh, I think this is key because you know we all want to be able to you know to 
have a meaningful existence, right? We want to be able to live and, and do what we want. We want to do what we care about. So there's really something rewarding, right? About kind of moving your perspective in, in that direction. So I, I think that's huge. But what people sometimes overlook about sort of this, this um, action rather than avoidance uh, idea is that, well, what we were just talking about a, a moment ago, that when you take action, when, when you, you know, kind of do an exposure task or a behavioral experiment, when you do something to really test yourself, then you learn, you, you learn mm -hmm. something new. And so rather than trying to change how you think, by sort of living in this world of hypotheticals, I think a, a much more effective approach is take a chance, right? Mm -hmm. And I always use I always use the phrase reasonable risk, right? It's not being reckless, yeah. but but a reasonable risk. Take a chance, do something that's hard, and then see what happens. And what I see again and again is that the more that that people take on these exposure tasks, they do the behavioral experiments. They, they take on a meaningful challenge, the more they start to change their thinking. They start to mm -hmm. say, I can do this. I can handle anxiety. I'm good at this. I'm mm -hmm. you know, more effective than I anticipated. I want to keep going. This matters to me. I don't have to get so involved in anxiety management. So there's there are just so many opportunities for new learning that come with that, that action. So in my opinion, I think that not only is this the best way to learn how to deal with anxiety, but it's also the best way to change how you think about anxiety and your ability to cope with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more there. And, and you talk in your book about three different types of avoidance that we tend to engage in when we're feeling anxious and about how you know we want to actually break that habit of reducing anxiety through avoidance and, and those kind of in those ways. I'm wondering if you can talk about each of these forms of avoidance so that we can think about what are the different ways in which we might want to start approaching doing exposures or behavioral experiments rather than avoiding. Yeah, I, I think the first um, the first one's pretty straightforward. Some people, you know, the avoidance is more behavioral. So, um, you know, I'm not going to get in the car, or I'm not going to get on the plane, or I'm not going to go to the street fair, or or whatever, right? And and so it's kind of a situation or a stimulus. There's something that the person can avoid behaviorally. They can say, I'm, I'm not going to do that thing, and. Uh, I work with a lot of students and, uh, and one of the things I hear a lot is, you know, I, I, I can't do my schoolwork. I can't take the exam. I can't work on this project because I'm too anxious and I need to distance myself from it. And then when I feel a little more relaxed, when, when I'm more up to it, then I'll do it. And, and so in my opinion, right, I think if you feel anxious about doing it, that's when it's particularly important to sit down and, and do the work. So I think we all have, you know, procrastination. Some people procrastinate because, you know, low motivation or whatever, but some people procrastinate because they're just anxious about, you know, how the, the task will go, how they'll perform. Mm -hmm. But bottom line, I think this is pretty straightforward. Most people who have, uh, who, who find themselves stuck in these patterns of, of behavioral avoidance, they can see it pretty readily. I'm, I'm not doing certain things. It's really interfering with my life. And I want to figure out a way to, to change that. So that's kind of the behavioral avoidance. I think um, another type of avoidance would be uh, avoiding the physical sensations of anxiety. And when we feel anxious, our, our bodies respond. There's that internal arousal, and that can be scary. It's, it's a hard thing to deal with sometimes. And so I totally understand why somebody might want to 
get away from that. And, um, and so some people look at that as, you know, trying to control the physical response of anxiety. And some people say, well, this is about controlling the subjective emotion of anxiety, but there's overlap there. And I think what, what people do uh, in either case, I think the, the strategies are pretty similar. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, doing some breathing exercises. And by the way, I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from breathing. <laughs> it's important to breathe. But this idea that, you know, if I'm anxious, I have to calm down. You know, that, that's a perfect example, right, of, of avoidance. I can't feel this emotion. I have to get away from it. So I'll do the breathing exercises that'll help me relax. Doesn't always work. And if it does work, maybe it's short-lived or, you know, the effect is kind of weak. So all kinds of things that people do not to feel uh, anxious. So breathing or exercise or, um, you know, I'm going to walk around the block or I'm going to meditate or change my diet, get a massage. We're not, a lot of these things are good, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're sort of uh, healthful behaviors. But um, when we use them to try to avoid anxiety, then it can be destructive, time-consuming, effortful. Um, and then sometimes people do destructive things to avoid the emotion of anxiety, like you know, turning to drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, more of the um, um, emotional avoidance or physical sensation avoidance. And then I think um, you know, very subtle is the cognitive avoidance, and that's where people don't like how they think. And they want to get away from the thoughts. They want to avoid them. And so sometimes people, uh, you know, they, I, I look at worrying as an avoidance tactic because it, it seems like, you know, there are kind of two typical patterns that, that I um, hear about a lot in, in, in terms of worrying. One is sort of worrying about lots of different things, right? Rather than saying, here's the one thing I'm going to think about and I'm going to resolve it and move on. Mm-hmm. It's I'm going to wor- worry about one idea and then another idea and kind of jumping from one thing to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, no resolution and a lot of effort. Um, and then uh, another form of sort of worry would be um, kind of doing this deep dive. I'm really going to get super involved in this idea and especially if it's, you know, something about an uncertain future, you know, working so hard, I want that certainty, I want that clarity, I want that resolution and, and never really getting there. So I, I look at worry as sort of an unconscious attempt to, well, sometimes it's conscious, but um, sort of an attempt to kind of get away from distressing thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, yeah. And then, um, you know, other things like, um, you know, reassuring yourself, right. Or, or trying to ignore the thought. I, I hear that a lot, right. I have these upsetting thoughts. I try to distract myself or ignore yeah. it. You know, of course, how, how um, <laughs> effective are we at doing that? Right. The brain's going to keep sending those signals. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we're just kind of stuck with those uh, unpleasant thoughts and trying to get away from them is it's going to backfire. And if anything, right, they're going to become more noticeable. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. So then, okay, so we've got these three forms of avoidance. And then mm-hmm. I- I'm wondering, you know, let's say someone has decided that they're ready, they want to stop avoiding, they want to start approaching, what are the, the next steps that you'd recommend someone take from there? Uh huh. Well, if it's, uh, I think the most straightforward um, process of of overcoming avoidance would be, you know, with behavioral avoidance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, um, you know, one thing that I think is really important as a starting point is be specific about, um, you know, kind of the situations or, um, or behaviors, activities that you tend to avoid. 
and see if you can be really clear about what, what it would look like if you were if you started to engage in those activities, putting anxiety aside for a moment, just clarify what is it that you're not doing or you believe you're not able to do that you want to be able to do. So being really clear about you know, the challenge, the, the behavior that somebody wants to work toward is important. And then I think it's really helpful, you know, therapists do this all the time with sort of exposure hierarchies, but I think you know, um, somebody who's trying to do this on their own could say, well, you know, some of the things I want to do, they're really scary. And I don't know if I'm ready for, you know, a big challenge. So start with something really small and then think about how you can gradually work your way up to bigger challenges. Now, some people, they say, you know, I'm going to start with the, you know, the scariest thing and just throw myself into it. That's great, right? If you're willing to, to accept that risk. But I think for most people, you know, start with something that's moderately challenging and then kind of work your way up to a, a bigger challenge. Um, I think going into, you know, when you're going into a situation that's anxiety provoking, it's important, you know, like we we're talking about earlier, maybe check in with yourself. Um, if the worst thing happened, right, this thing I'm anticipating, could I deal with that? Um, and, and sometimes the answer really is no. Um, and it might not be you know, there's deal with it, like, can I cope with the emotional experience? And then there's, you know, deal with it, like, can I deal with the the consequences, right, the practical consequences of that. So, you know, for example, if somebody's, and I'm using a lot of um, sort of social anxiety examples, but if somebody, you know, is concerned about public speaking, and they think, you know, if I go up in front of an audience, and I'm really anxious and sweaty, and, you know, visibly uh, uncomfortable, that's going to damage my rep. And I can't deal with that, right? That's something I'm not willing to accept. Fair enough, right? So hold off on that, you know, start with something smaller. So I think that's an important question, right? If, if the worst thing happens, even if you think it's unlikely, are you prepared to deal with it? Can, can you take that risk? And, uh, and then I guess, you know, a final thing to think about is, you know, assume that you're going to feel anxious, right? You probably will. And what are you going to do with it, right? And I think, you know, when we talk about the next uh, kind of basic strategy for managing anxiety, um, you know, here's where we can think more about acceptance, right? If, if I do feel anxious, and I probably will, mm-hmm. how, how do I want to understand it? How do I want to relate to it in the moment? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think those are some, you know, some, oh, and then finally, sorry, one more thing is, uh <laughs> you know, I, I like to reinforce, right, this sort of preference for control when it's helpful. So if there's a practical problem, an obstacle, something that needs to be eliminated or addressed before you move toward the challenge, do it. Um, mm-hmm. So that'll make you feel like, okay, I'm using my my attention, my energy for something productive, and then I'm going to let go and, and go in there and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So if there's a test that you have coming up and you're anxious about it, maybe you, you actually study it to give yourself some <laughs> control, even though there's a lot of uncertainty about how you'll feel as you're taking it or what the questions will be that you get on the test. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I'm curious. I want to circle back to this piece of you know thinking about what's the worst that could happen. And if that happens, could I handle it? Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I want to come back to this is because I think so often, especially in obsessive compulsive disorder, which or OCD, which I haven't really talked about yet on this show, but I think this might be a tricky question for people because I think a lot of times people's fears are that something that they would not be able to tolerate might happen, right? That like, I mean, and, and so for those of you listening, this might 
be new, but some people have fears that they might, you know, when cutting vegetables with a knife, that they might take that knife and then stab somebody. And Mm -hmm. that's not something that any of us really would imagine being able to handle. Um, And so I I could imagine at that step, some people getting stuck and thinking, well, you know, I shouldn't chop with those with the knife because I wouldn't be able to handle that if I did snap and kill all of my loved ones, for instance. Mm -hmm. Even same thing right now with, with, uh, you know, with COVID and I'm a parent of two young kids. And in my last episode, I talked about navigating anxiety around this Delta variant uh, as parents of unvaccinated kids. And, and this idea that, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, I, I guess I would be able to tolerate it, but it, it would be horrible if my kids got really sick and died from the Delta variant, um, for instance. And, and so, and yet I'm still choosing to send them to school, right? Knowing that that could happen. Um, I, I guess I want to come back to this piece of what would you say to people who are telling themselves that, you know, who, who do that check and, and say, well, I wouldn't be able to handle that if that happened. Um, what does that mean for the exposure at that point? This is such a tricky question, you know, with OCD, um, it's so person specific and, you know, people sort of vary in, in the extent to which they really believe, you know, that these awful things might happen. And so it's hard for me to give, you know, kind of a blanket answer, but um, I think generally, right, when people have an urge to do something that that's pretty uh, dangerous or destructive, they, they recognize that and, and they might say, you know, I, I do kind of feel like I want to act on this. And that's pretty different from I have this idea that I might act on it or that, you know, that it could happen or that I might snap or deep down there's something in me that really wants that, even though I'm not aware of it. And so that's a a tough thing. Um, And I guess the way I look at it is, um, you know, here's where we sort of get into that gray area of, um, you know, somebody might say, "I'm, I'm pretty confident that I won't do this or that this thing won't happen but I don't know if that's good enough for me. I, I don't know if I can, you know, accept that risk. And so I sort of present, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not my role, right, to tell anyone this is what you do. This is how you handle it. But I think in our lives, right, we have to make the call. Do I, you know, kind of take the risk, right, and, and say, you know, this is probably just, you know, this, this frightening thought or image that doesn't, you know, deserve the attention or significance that I'm bringing to it. And maybe I can let go of it and just, you know, let that be background noise and and take that chance and pretty sure I'm okay here. Or I can spend, you know, all of my time avoiding certain situations or working really hard to control the thought. And uh, I don't know if that's going to work either because it persists and it's anxiety provoking. So I, I sort of, it's a really delicate thing, I think, you know, helping people figure out what, what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, right, that might, you know, involve something that's more gradual, where I'm, I'm going to take the chance of, um, you know, kind of thinking about something intentionally, um, where, you know, even if something bad happened, I, I could handle what happens or, or something like that. It's hard to, you know, sort of speak <laughs> about this in the abstract. But, um, you know, sort of, I guess, meeting people where they happen to be, where they are in terms of their their willingness to kind of try different things. And if someone says, I, I just can't take the risk, I, I respect that. I do understand that. But I think ultimately it really comes down to the individual to decide, you know, do, do I live with uncertainty and 
you know, do my best, right, to kind of get on with life? Or do I really get invested in these, these scary thoughts and, and do my best to eliminate them? Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of that choice point there, right? You have mm-hmm. the choice of either choosing to go down the path, to continue down the path of avoiding, doing everything you can to avoid, which really is only maybe momentarily successful, if that, right? Uh, or taking this risk and actually living with that uncertainty, allowing those thoughts to be there, doing engaging in those activities that seem potentially risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's just such a, a tough call. And, you know, you can try to do little exercises with people like, you know, I want you to imagine, or, you know, I want you to think or even wish for my hair mm-hmm. to catch on fire <laughs> or whatever. And, uh, you know, sometimes we'll say, I, w- I would never even think that because, um, you know, it might happen. And I'm saying, well, I'm planting this, planting the seed, right. I want mm-hmm. you to do it. And, you know, somebody might say, no, I refuse to do that, but the thoughts there now, and, you know, and they are thinking about it. And sometimes people say, okay, I'll give that a try. And it didn't happen and it could happen, but, you know, I'm, I'm willing to, you know, to live with that risk or whatever. And so, and anyway, um, I think we can sort of simulate um, kind of exposure tasks that, that help people see whether there's a relationship between what you think and, you know, and an outcome but ultimately, I think, you know, for, for some concerns and for some people, it really comes down to, am I willing to take that risk and live with the uncertainty that comes with, um, you know, allowing those, those scary thoughts to be there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that can make it hard though, right? Because so many people do have this fear that if they allow a thought to be there, like you're saying, that it might make them more likely to act on that thought, or it might make it more likely that that thing will come true, mm-hmm. almost as though they're like putting that energy out into the world. Um, and, and so, yeah, I love that technique of, of purposely kind of wishing harm, you know, wishing that the next person who crashes the street gets hit by a bus and seeing, does that actually happen just because we thought that ahead of time or even wish that ahead of time mm-hmm. that can be really helpful there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for some people, right, even those little, little tiny steps, right. It's just no way I'm not going to do it. So, right. um, you know, I think that's, that's sort of realistic, right. For, for some folks, there's a limit to, to what they're willing to try. And I, I get that. And, um, but I think, you know, we all have to sort of check in with ourselves, right? What, what am I willing to try? What am I learning to put up with? And, and so some people say, I'd rather do all of that mental work to try to control mm-hmm. how I think. And, you know, if that's how it's got to be, so be it. Um, that's, that's as far as I'm willing to take it. So if, if yeah. that's the choice, uh, certainly I respect that. Yeah, makes sense. And so I'm wondering, actually, this kind of ties into our, the, the piece that you talk about in your book about um, intrusive thoughts and how, mm-hmm. how we ought to respond to those. And you kind of already alluded to this a little bit, treating them almost as though they're background noise. I'm wondering if you can speak to that a bit more, though, what you would recommend to someone who is having thoughts of, you know, intrusive thoughts about what might happen down the road or about some, some big, scary, negative consequence that, that could come come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's where I think acceptance can be really helpful. And uh, again, I, I don't think, I don't like to give people a recipe. I think it's important to give them the opportunity to make a choice about what to do. And so sometimes people become sort of preoccupied with, you know, kind of these existential concerns, like, you know, I'll never find meaning in my life, or I'll always feel alone or isolated from people. And and that's, you know, really overwhelming. And, 
So, um, you know, sort of comes down to, do I want to get really involved in that and, you know, try to explore this and do a deep dive and, you know, get to a point where I, I no longer have that, uh, you know, that conflict, that internal struggle, or am I willing to acknowledge that, you know, this is the kind of stuff that's just going to pop up in my mind. It's part of life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it doesn't serve a useful purpose to get involved in it. So I think, you know, it's helpful for people to recognize that not every idea or image or urge or whatever that, that appears um, is important. They're not always significant. They don't always deserve a response. Um, other intrusive thoughts like, um, you know, if, let's say somebody um, has, they're um, really committed to a spiritual or religious practice. And so that maybe they they say certain prayers or they have certain beliefs about God or something like that. And then, you know, there's kind of an opposite belief that pops into their mind about, I don't know, worshiping the devil or, or something like that. And, you know, then that gets scared. What if that's, you know, what if it means I, I really want that or, or that's what I really believe. And, and so, I think the question is, um, you know, how do you make the call, right? How do you decide when those inner experiences are really meaningful and they deserve attention and you should get in there and, you know, and make sense of it. And when, you know, this stuff is like mental noise and it serves no useful purpose, if anything, it's just, you know, kind of anxiety um, sort of reminding you to be really, really careful. So this bad thing doesn't happen but there's not a lot that you can do to control it or to, to play it safe and all these things that you're going to do to sort of scramble to feel better or, you know, they're probably not going to pay off or they may even make it worse. So the way I see it is kind of going back to the original uh, idea of, you know, notice how you think and then make that decision. What do I want to do with this? Do I want to challenge the belief and, you know, try to resolve it in some way or think in more useful terms do I want to, you know, kind of take action and, and see whether perhaps that belief is not true based on my experience? Or do I want to sort of let this, this idea kind of live? Um, and it's really annoying and it's distracting, but can I just let that idea be there and, and make the decision that I'm not going to get involved in this? I'm, I'm going to let it um, persist in the background if that's what it's going to do. And, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. So that's where I, I think, you know, really moving into that acceptance uh, element of, of anxiety management, where you say sometimes anxiety will be there and it's going to take different forms. It might be what I think or the urge to avoid or what I call it or what my body's doing. Um, what am I going to do with it when I think it's probably not uh, as important as it might seem in the moment? Yeah. Yeah, and so that's the final step of your approach, right? To, mm -hmm. to acknowledge that those things are there, those thoughts, those feelings, those urges, whatever it might be, to acknowledge they're there and to let them be there. And then as you say in your book, to accept and redirect, right? Mm -hmm. And so I oftentimes encourage people to first acknowledge, especially with those intrusive thoughts, to acknowledge like, yes, that could happen. Maybe I could be a horrible person or, or something like that. That could happen. And right now, I'm going to keep talking to my friend, right? Not trying to figure it out in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, just allowing the thought or the, the rapid heartbeat, whatever it might be, allowing that to be there. And that's so really critical to your approach, that acceptance piece.
Yeah, I, I really like the way you're you're talking about that because most people think it's sort of an either or, right? Like either I, I get wrapped up in the thoughts or um, you know, or I leave it alone and it goes away. Usually it's both, right? So um, you know, the thought's gonna be there, it's gonna be noisy and and uh, annoying and scary. Um, but you don't have to get so involved in it, right? You can accept that it's there, notice it, acknowledge it, label it. You know, maybe it's this, this is the, how I think in these situations mm-hmm. and then redirect and redirect your attention and your behavior to whatever's more meaningful in the moment. And I think, um, you know, in, in social situations, this is when it's so important because a lot of people say, I'm not going to have anything to say and anything useful or interesting, or this person's judging me. Maybe those things are all true, but the more you you get involved in those ideas, the more you're removed from an effective interaction. And I think that's what most people want when they're talking to people. So if you can just accept the inner experience, and like you said, right, maybe maybe you decide I'm going to come back to that later. Maybe that is important, mm-hmm. um, but now's not the time. And I think being really selective in those moments is so empowering being able to say, I'm just not going to go there. I'm not going to go down this road. I'm not doing this right now. Mm-hmm. I've got more important things I want to think about or do. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes think about it as like a fly buzzing around you that you don't want to be there, but like, if I'm hanging out with someone I love and care about, I'm not going to spend all my time and energy trying to get that fly to go away. I'm going to let it keep buzzing around me and choose to focus my attention elsewhere. But I'm going to, you know, it's like, I'm almost saying, hi, yep, I see you fly, but (laughs) you don't have to take me away from this important conversation or this work that I'm doing, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. The, The fly is such a good comparison because, you know, flies are are so aggravating. And when, when they appear, right, you know, of course, right. You want to get rid of them. And it's like a a fly in your, your skull, right. You know, your brain is, is throwing these flies at you and you got to make that call, right. You know, am I going to kind of battle them or am I going to leave them alone and just put up with this annoyance? And um, I think sometimes people, you know, they hear stuff like that and they think, you know, but I'm giving up, right. I'm, I'm helpless. I'm, you know, maybe if I work at this more, right, I'll be able to eliminate this problem. But, you know, the way I see it is you probably won't, right? And, and working harder, I know we keep talking about this, but working harder to control it is, is probably going to make the problem escalate. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, another piece too that's so important is just to note that we all have these unwanted thoughts from time to time and anxiety provoking mm-hmm. thoughts. It's just part of having like a, a working human brain, right? And so we can really work hard to get rid of them, but they're going to keep being there, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we could go that path or we could just accept them, allow them to be there, almost welcome them when they show up and choose to, you know, to not dwell on them, to focus our attention elsewhere. So you talk about strategies for increasing acceptance of our anxiety, including humor, which I love using in my work. I'm wondering if you can give some examples of how you might bring humor into a therapy session. Humor, uh, I guess just briefly before I talk about humor, I, I like to emphasize that there are four ways I think that we can relate to anxiety that, that might be different from what people tend to do when, when they avoid it, when they struggle with it. Um, and so just briefly, I think we can be really objective about it. Like, you know, this is just an emotional reaction or it's what my brain does when I anticipate a threat. We can understand it as an annoyance, like, like the fly. We can, you know, give ourselves a break and be patient and, you know, say, hey, it's okay to have these feelings, right? I, I get scared. I get uncomfortable. It's authentic, right? It's just how I feel. It's okay. So 
lots of different ways that we can sort of relate to anxiety, but, but I really like humor. And I know that I find uh, people differ dramatically in, in their willingness to kind of use humor because I know some of my clients, you know, they, they think this idea of, of trying to be humorous when they're feeling anxious is kind of dismissive, that it's minimizing the the struggle, the difficulty. And, and others, they really appreciate the humor and they, they kind of see that this helps me get a little perspective and, and see that maybe I don't have to take the anxiety so seriously. So uh, humor, I, I think there are lots of ways that you can use humor. I really like saying anxious uh, thoughts out loud. Um, and, and when I do that, you know, sometimes I, I just hear myself saying these things and, and I laugh and I think, yeah, this does sound kind of silly when I actually hear it or when I say it, I, I notice how animated I get. So even little things like that can, can be funny um, or, you know, kind of, um, maybe having a sort of a silly back and forth with your brain, right. Where you, you know, kind of, uh, you know, say something a little, a little aggressive or, um, you know, depending on your, how comfortable you are with certain words with, with language, right. But, you know, kind of talking back to your brain, like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do and, and sort of getting tough back, but not in a controlling way, mm-hmm. but in sort of a, a jokey way. Um, but I'll give you a, a personal example, something, um, you know, I think it's helpful to know that even people who treat anxiety, you know, sometimes find themselves getting overwhelmed by anxiety. And yeah. so the personal example where I used humor recently is uh, I'm, I'm not the most confident driver. And so when I get in the car, um, you know, it's one thing to, to feel anxious about driving and, and you're a good driver and there's really, you know, not a lot to be concerned about, but I'm just not a great driver. I'm not a very confident driver. And if, if I'm driving on roads that are really windy and they're going up hills and, um, you know, and there's like a cliff or something, it's terrifying. I get very, very scared. And uh, so recently I found myself on this road and for years I avoided it. And by the way, right, this was a a choice I made, right? I want to avoid it. I I sort of look at this more as I'm just not a great driver. It's better for me. It it really is safer to, uh, you know, take a different route. But anyway, for years I avoided this route and recently GPS took me on this route. It was about a 30 mile stretch of this very scary road and people in the area who drive it all the time, they're you know, very comfortable and they're driving right behind me and getting upset because I'm driving slowly. And um, so it was, uh, you know, a really challenging situation for me. And so one of the things, I mean, right off the bat, right, I found myself kind of laughing because such a a psychologist thing to do. I was checking (laughs) in with myself and I thought, is this legitimate fear because this is a high risk situation and I'm not a great driver or is this anxiety and I'm overestimating the likelihood that something awful will happen. And just by, you know, kind of saying that out loud, I, you know, I was so amused by the fact that I was even doing that. Um, and, and then of course I concluded this is fear because uh, <laughs> of my, um, you know, of my, um, my, my driving ability, or I should say inability. But anyway, um, I started having all these catastrophic thoughts, I'm going to drive off the road, I'm going to, you know, go down this cliff, I'm going to crash, um, I'm going to have to pull over and, you know, call for help. And every time I had these thoughts, I just laughed at them, I was so amused that they were uh, emerging, I knew that this is catastrophic thinking. I have no idea, you know, whether this stuff will come true. But I know that I'm thinking this way. 
And I've got some, some options with regard to how I want to relate to these, these thoughts. And so I made the choice to just kind of say these things out loud. Um, sometimes I would, you know, kind of make a sort of mock scream or, you know, ah, I'm just terrified. And, you know, I'm laughing as I'm doing this. And it was a very uncomfortable drive, but I was laughing the whole way. And, and it was much more manageable because of it, because I, I really had that perspective that, yeah, this is a hard thing for me to do. I'm uncomfortable, but I can do this. I can deal with it. I can work through it. And that's probably my best bet. And, uh, and that really paid off for me. And I, I got through the 30 mile stretch and I was okay. Yeah. So that's an example of, you know, how you might use humor in those difficult moments just to, you know, to kind of lighten the mood a little bit, to get a little bit of perspective and, and make it easier to move through a difficult situation. I love that example. And it reminds me of uh, last summer, I, I got stung by by bees, or I, actually they're probably yellow jackets, I think, because I got stung repeatedly by the same ones. And like, well, I could see them stinging me and it was in eight different places on my body, multiple oh, no. stings in each place. And I was with my kids alone on a hike. And, and our dog and I, I screamed and I was terrified. Um, and luckily they didn't get stung and I ended up getting out. But I, we also, my family, we love to hike and I wanted to take my kids hiking again. And my daughter in particular was really scared that she would get stung or that I'd get stung again. And so the next hike we went on was really, really tough. She was really anxious. She didn't want to move. And so we ended up singing we could get stung over and over again to as many different tunes as we could think of. So to Twinkle Twinkle and to ABC and to um, Happy Birthday. And it within a few minutes, like she could barely move at first. It was, and and I, honestly, I was still a little scared that I might get stung again. And within a few minutes, we were laughing and enjoying the hike. And, you know, maybe still feeling a little anxious, but but able to actually be present rather than just so caught up in our anxiety. Um, and so that's just another an example of another way that I sometimes like to use a little. I humor. love that that the singing, right? The, you know, bringing music to the anxiety <laughs> is such a great thing. And yeah, I, I love that idea of you know singing the thoughts, or sometimes I dance right to the mm -hmm. the, the rhythm of my heartbeat, or <laughs> I imagine that you know there's so much energy that I, I could run through a wall, or, <laughs> you know, silly things like that. I, I think you know just make it. And again, it's acceptance, right? This is mm -hmm. scary. This is really hard. I don't like this. This is tough. Um, but that doesn't mean that I have to, you know, that I have to let this control me and, and run away from it. I can just see it for what it is and, and even have a little bit of fun with it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I wonder before we wrap up, I'm wondering, mm -hmm. um, if there's just one final thing, anything that you'd want our listeners to know about anxiety to take with them today. I think it's just something that I said earlier, but I just want to reiterate that I, I think, um, you know, go easy on yourself for, for feeling anxious. You know, there, we, we all encounter very challenging situations in life. We get overwhelmed. Um, we get tested. We're going to feel anxious. But I think remember that if you can learn to kind of stand up to anxiety and, and say, you know, I'm not going to let this emotion control um, my life. I'm, I'm going to, you know, allow that authentic emotional reaction to be there when, when it happens and challenge myself and, and really give myself an opportunity to 
you know, either accept it or understand it differently or take action. But I think the more that you can take action and show yourself through direct experience that I can get on with my life, even if I feel anxious, I think the better off you'll be. And, and I think that's, you know, the most, most significant aspect of long-term anxiety management, which is take action, accept that anxiety, work through it, and give yourself that opportunity to live your life and, and to learn through experience that you can handle this. Um, and for some people, you know, it's hard to go that alone and, you know, get some help, professional help, maybe from a therapist if necessary. But I think um, really important to give yourself at least the opportunity to learn something new about anxiety. And that comes through um, taking action through, you know, really um, taking on meaningful challenges and really prioritizing your life rather than prioritizing anxiety management so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is su- this has been such a helpful conversation. I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about you and your work. Uh, they can visit my website, which is cbtchico.com. Uh, they can also uh, check out my blog. It's Psychology Today. It's called CBT and Me. And, uh, and then, of course, um, you know, if you like the the stuff that we're talking about today, uh, my book, Show Your Anxiety, Whose Boss, has uh, all of this info and, and more. And uh, so, um, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, so much, Joel, for coming on today and sharing your, your expertise, your words of wisdom with us. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Alyssa. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section on my website, alyssajared.com.